Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Tonight is February 3rd, 2010, and I'm here with tonight's co-host, Ed Hill, who is the 21st Century Resource Specialist at the Ohio Resource Center for Math, Science, and Reading at The Ohio State University. Ed, thanks for being here, and thanks for helping to arrange this. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure. Delighted to have you here. Our special guest tonight is Dr. James Paul G. from Arizona State University. He's the author of What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy. And Jim, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. You're getting clapping from the participants. I'm going oh, to good. describe. Excellent. I like that. I'm, yes, you, you should. I'm going to describe uh, briefly <laughs> the Illuminate environment. Uh, Jim, there's a picture of you and of the cover of your book on the screen right now for people to see. Um, and now I'm moving to the next okay. screen, which is a shot of the project that I work on professionally, which is LearnCentral.org, a free social network for educators, educational networking, that has this Illuminate environment built in. We encourage you to go to LearnCentral.org and learn more about us. Sure, glad to um, be able to take part in this. Uh, coming up on the interview series tomorrow, Shell Israel. Shell may not be well known in the educational world, but um, uh, he and uh, oh darn, what's his name? Um, does anybody remember? Uh, the guy from Microsoft uh, wrote um, uh, Naked Conversations. He's now written a new book called Twitterville. He'll be on tomorrow night. Uh, really fun. Robert Scoble. Uh, February 9th, Lisa Gillis on online high schools. February 10th, Larry Johnson from the New Media Consortium, and they're producing um, the K-12 Horizon Report. Should be fun to hear from him. February 11th, next Thursday, Clay Shirky. Then David Seitman Garland, Dan Pink on the 17th, Kevin Johnson and Susan Manning on online education for dummies on February 18th. Scott Rosenberg on March 2nd, Sharon Peters on Teachers Without Borders, March 11th, Trilling and Fidel, 21st Century Skills on March 17th, Tony Wagner on the 25th, and Sir Ken Robinson on March 30th. Quite sure why we're getting a telephone message. Are you able to hear me still on the telephone bridge? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okie doke. So if this is your first time in Illuminate, this is an interactive environment. We don't need to tell you too much. You're probably figuring it out. But if you uh, look, you're able to put messages in the chat. And here uh, in the part bottom of the participant window, you'll see some emoticons for clapping, smiling face, confused look, or thumbs down. If you use those, I will let our guests know uh, what, what you're indicating, but I don't expect anything other than clapping and smiley faces tonight. Uh, the big icon of the hand with the green up arrow is how you would raise your hand to take the microphone. So remember, if you want to use the mic tonight, do go up to Tools Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard, and make sure your mic is working. When you do take the microphone, it's like an on-off switch. You turn your mic on, speak, and then you turn it off after you're done speaking. Um, if you send a message in the chat room that you think is a private message by sending it to another individual, do be aware that I actually see those. Uh, there's nothing fully private there, so be, be kind to me. Okay, now I'm going to give you the ability to actually modify this map of the world and let us know where you're listening from. Look for a little wand with a red star at the end, and then click on the map where you're from. And you can also shout out in the chat uh, your location and maybe the time and the temperature. And we've got UK, and it looks like we've got Spain or Portugal. 
Florida we knew, and we I don't see Peru yet. There you go. Very North American-centric crowd, but we do have our international guests, so we're sure glad to have you. Oh, Colombia, Barcelona. Most fun to have you here. From New Jersey. Someone put a mark in for you, Jim, in Arizona. Oh, good. Excellent. Excellent. A big smiley face representing you. That was Peggy, your alma mater friend. Good. She knows where it is. <laughs> she does. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody, for being here. We're going to move forward. You're so welcome to shout out in the chat if you'd like. Okay. So, uh, Jim, this was a really fun book for me to spend some time with today. I have to tell you, the writing in the book is really good, and it's very easy to like Well, thank you. You kind of poke uh -oh. fun at yourself throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that you guys well, you know, one thing style? I should say about that book is I, uh, yeah, I, I wrote that book uh, when I didn't know a lot about games. I was just getting into them. I, it, it's only about seven years ago, and I've always found it much easier to write what, a lot about what I don't know a deep amount about because you still have all your enthusiasm for it. And I was, of course, at that stage a real learner and very enthusiastic. And so I think that hopefully that comes across in the book. It definitely comes across in the book, and I will tell you, uh, you're getting uh, Durf here is giving you an all caps standing ovation. Carol says a great read. Um, <laughs> I I thought oh, that you. the introduction to your book was maybe the best introduction to a book I've ever read. Oh wow, that's nice to know. I think I'm going to hang up now. No, yeah, you don't need to. You're going to hear lots of other compliments. But I personally felt like I I learned a lot just from reading the introduction. And you now, are you naturally a good writer, or did you have to spend a lot of time crafting that, thinking about how people would respond to the idea of a book on this kind of a topic? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I care a lot about writing, and but I'm originally trained as a theoretical linguist, and so I did learn initially how to write very badly. And it's taken years to try to learn to write clearly. I guess the biggest thing I try for is clarity. And in the end, you often always fail. But you know, it's interesting about this book. It was my first trade book. And I thought when I wrote it, it was completely jargon-free. I mean, I thought, wow, this is, this is really jargon-free, only, of course, now to realize it's still full of jargon, um, and that I didn't really know what a jargon-free book was. And so some people, and, and ironically, it's more academics than gamers have criticized the book for its jargon. I think gamers are used to, used to jargon. Um, but it, it played to my advantage uh, quite accidentally in that the book was written at a time where a lot of people were beginning to get interested in, in saying that games are good for learning or can teach us something about learning, and they needed kind of some old academic to say it. Uh, Mark Prinsky had already said it, but they needed, you know, so even though I wanted this to be kind of a uh, much more friendly read. Um, it, it, the fact that it's kind of in between made it sell well, ironically. Uh, I've learned from it. If I do another one, it'll be, I mean, I do have a new book coming out on girls and women gaming that I think is much more uh, user-friendly in the way it's written. So that's interesting. Uh, when, when do you expect that to be out? Someone just died of joy. It should be out in about, out. about three to four months. It'll be from Palgrave, the same publisher that did, uh, that did this book. 
So I apologize. I wrote it with my wife. When you come in through the telephone bridge, there's about a second delay, so I apologize for talking over you. But Jenna McWilliams says she oh, just fine. died of joy knowing that you have another book coming out. Um, you do talk oh, about gender. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry again. Um, you do talk about gender in the book, and you also talk about uh, violence. And I felt that those, the, the, at least the in, the in the violence section, you were able to kind of give some thoughtful perspective. Do you want to just talk briefly? Because I'm imagining you get some pushback on the violence issue. Well, I actually got pushed back on the gender issue because I didn't say enough about gender. And uh, one of the things I came to realize later um, is that I didn't pay attention to games like The Sims, which is the best-selling game in history, and its majority of its players are women. And I guess as a typical man, I kind of went towards some of these more macho games and really missed that women and girls today in games like The Sims are doing really 21st century skill sort of stuff because they're designing for the game. They're becoming designers. They're building learning communities. And so, um, you know, if I had known more, I would have been able to say a lot more about gender, and I, uh, that's what I'm trying to redress with the new book. I, I really think it's not an issue uh, that women and girls don't play games. It's actually that they're doing a lot of design and production around games that I think is going to be the cutting edge of gaming in the 21st century. That, that is where we're producing our own games and designing and being com learning communities and not just playing them. So I, I hope to redress my sins on gender. The violence issue, you know, there's a book called Grand Theft Childhood written by uh, two guys at Harvard, that I, I pretty much think that book puts to bed the violence issue. It gives a very reasoned uh, overview of the literature and of the issues that I think is in, in fair and accurate. It's not that I don't care about the violence issue. It's so much time has been devoted to the violence issue that we haven't dealt with a lot of other important issues about games. And you know, many games like The Sims, uh, you know, uh, Animal Crossing, uh, are not uh, violent games. There's thousands of games made. Some involve violence and some don't. Uh, violence is not the heart of games. But the violence issue does bring up an extremely important thing. And you know, the media, sometimes you read the media, you think Grand Theft Auto is the only game ever made because that's the icon of people complaining. But you know, for people who are not gamers, they're influenced by books and movies, and books and movies are about their content, right? I mean, if a movie is about a romance between two people, the, mo the movie is about a romance. Games are not about their content. They are about their gameplay and the problem solving you do. The content is only there, the story and the content is only there to motivate why you're doing what you're doing. So in a game like Grand Theft Auto, you know, where you shoot people and you do stuff, and that's why it, 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 you could change every act of violence in Grand Theft Auto. So every shooting could be, don't shoot people, take a picture of them. Uh, when you're given the quest to plant a bomb in a car unseen, you could give, be given the quest to plant flowers in the car unseen for a romantic thing. And in which the activity would still be the same. The gameplay would still be the same. The motivation would be different. The game is first about its gameplay, not its content, which is an extremely different thing from movies and from books. I think that there's such a deal over violence in games in part because people don't understand that. They think that like books and movies, the games are primarily about their content, but they're about the game mechanic or the game play. Now, none of that is to say that content's not worth discussing, but it, if it hides the fact that what's really important about that game is what the problems people were solving and how that recruited learning, then you've missed the point of games. 
Okay, so I want to. Jim, this is Ed. Go ahead, Ed. I, I think. I'm sorry. I think that's a, an amazing point. I, I find um, that people, uh, especially in education, um, focus on the content and not the gameplay, especially when trying to fit games into a learning situation. So, could you talk a little bit more about, uh, I guess, the dichotomy between the two? Yes, I mean that's a very important thing. You know, the the production of non-entertainment games, you know, learning games. Sometimes they're called serious games. I don't like that term, but whatever. Not you know these non-entertainment games that are learning games has come much more slowly than we had hoped. And the reason is because the initial attempts were made by baby boomers like myself and educators who still are beholden to an old-fashioned theory of learning. As younger people, some of them from the game industry, you know, as EA sheds people, you get young game designers making games, and the games are way better. They have a much more deep understanding that a game, that content is learned through problem solving, not by fronting content itself. Now, that's a learning principle that is important whether you have a game or not. See, schools are about learning facts. You know, you learn facts in physics, or you learn facts in biology, and you write them down on a test. And when you've written them down correctly, you get an A. Now, we know from research since the 70s, I mean, a virtual cottage industry of research has shown that if that's the way you teach, I mean, I front the facts, and I test them on a piece of paper, you don't get problem solving. The person can know, for example, Newton's laws of motion and still can't use them to solve any real problems. On the other hand, if you front the problem solving, you say, you are going to use Newton's laws of motion to solve problems. And by the way, these have to be problems you want to solve and you're motivated to solve. You get both. You know how to solve problems, but because you have constantly recruited them to solve that problem, you actually remember them. So the irony is when you front facts and make them the big deal, content, which I call the content fetish in schools, you get facts but no problem solving. But if you front problem solving, you get problem solving and facts. And the facts are retained because you have to use them as a tool. You have to keep using them to, as a problem solving tool. So that's the basic paradigm of, of game learning is uh, front problem solving, make people use the facts to solve the problem. Don't front facts. Wonderful. Thank you. Jim, am I right in, in thinking that your story about uh, trying to teach basketball by teaching statistics instead of playing it would, would fit there? Um, yes. Uh, what, but notice what you get. I mean, a good example, because you bring up statistics. So many people probably on the line have played World of Warcraft or know about World of Warcraft. It's the most played multiplayer game. Uh, in the world today, or one of the most played, and it has 8 million subscribers, actually 15 million players worldwide. And the thing about World of Warcraft, you know, it's a role-playing game that you play with other people. You know, there's thousands of people on at a time. Um, and people play and enjoy it. It's an amazing experience. But as people get hooked on that game, and they play it, some of them want to understand exactly how it works. And they begin to get on forums with other people and collaboratively work out the statistical model under the game, which is very, very complicated. And by the way, then debate with the company, what's the correct system model? Do you have the right one? Should you have done it that way? Would there be a better way to do it? It's the interesting thing when you front the problems and the experience. After the person's done a lot of practice, I mean, now you know you're really good at World of Warcraft. You begin to want to understand it as a system. You actually want to theorize about it, right? Because you're hooked on it now. It's something you own. So if we went to people and said, "Do you want to study the statistical model of World of Warcraft?" They'd say, "No, I want to play it." But once they practice and become expert, 
pretty soon that experience is something they want to understand at ever deeper levels, and you've hooked them into a very theoretical understanding, something that you could never have started with. And so you've got people in World of Warcraft who are both expert players and know enough about the models and the design of the game, they could build one themselves. In fact, you know there's a whole community that make mods for the game that is tools you can use to make the play better. And uh, they make them and often give them away free, and the company doesn't have to make them. So the players come to be expert theoreticians about the game. I mean, uh, and that's because you didn't start with the theory. You started with the experience. So uh, tell me if I'm making a connection here. In my mind, it, the stars are going off or fireworks. But uh, this weekend, I was at a school in Philadelphia where the seniors take a class called Learning Theory. And the, the mm -hmm. principal of the school talks to them about learning and about the theory of learning that the school uses. And, and they kind of go through the discussion of what learning is and what they've learned in their years at the school. You're talking about gamers who become a part of the creation of games. Is there this explicit right. understanding then of, of how learning takes place that is formed through that process? Yeah, there are for some people. But taking that example that you've just given, see, so it's one thing to take kids after they've been in your school for a number of years and say, now you've experienced all this stuff. Let's talk about it at a theoretical level. Let's now kind of understand it as a system. Uh, that's a good thing to do at the end, not at the beginning. At the beginning, another good thing to do would be, here are some tools for building learning. Why don't you build some learning? Right? I mean, so you want to get the experience of learning. Then you want to have the person able to think about, how would I do it? How would I build it? And then you want them to theorize about it after they've had enough practice, and it's a good a good progression. Um, you know, games make you uh, reflective only if there's a community around you that encourages you to be reflective. Games are not good or bad by themselves. You can just smash the buttons, uh, or you can get into modding the game and understanding the game. And that, that, the game itself doesn't do it. It's usually the community around the game. You get motivated by the other players, the forums, the, and you know, or wanting to you know increase your identity as a gamer, and then you want to understand that game uh, in a deeper and deeper way. Now, having said that, it is true that an interesting thing about all video games is I can't do very well at them if I don't understand how the rules are working. Right? And what a, any good gamer does is I take a game, it could be, let's say, Assassin's Creed or Grand Theft Auto or Civilization, any game, and I ask myself, what, is the, what are the rules here? How did this thing get designed? And why am I asking that? So that I can leverage those rules to my advantage. Okay, I've got a set of goals. I want to win. I want to solve the problems. And I know that I've really got to understand the design of this thing to solve those problems. So even at the act of playing is already a a type of designing because I'm trying to psych out the rules and then I'm trying to say how do I use them to my advantage. And you know one thing that really good game designers often write about is they love it when players find things they can do in the game that the designer never thought you could do. That is an emergent property because they understand that that person is really figuring out the design and the rule system in the game. Uh, Will Wright has written about the fact that gamers are creating a model of the game universe in their head. They're doing what scientists do. Scientists try to build models of the world. Gamers are trying to build models of the rule system of the game so they can accomplish uh, tasks. Model-based thinking is core to science, core to education. And one of the themes for me in the book, uh, the Jim, this is can I, I'll go ahead and then I'll let you go. One of the themes that I kept 
feeling in the book was that the game worlds were much more like real life than school was. Right, and, and the reason they're, in, they're more like real life is the way that human beings are built is when do we think best? Okay, let's think about when does a human being look smart and when does he think well? Well, there's several conditions under which you can get people to look very smart. First of all, they have to have a problem or a goal. It has to be clear, and they have to care about it, and then they have to be able to practice it and do it. So when humans are given an experience, it has a goal, there's an action they need to take. They care about the accomplishment of the goal. And they also get clear feedback about whether they are achieving that goal. Humans look smart. When you ask them to learn something where they don't care about it, there's no clear goal, um, and they're not getting good feedback, uh, it is an extremely artificial situation in which people look stupid. School sets up a form of learning to make people look stupid so that it can create a bell curve. Right, so that tiny number of people can have high success, tiny number of people can have complete failure, and most people can be middling. If you went into the, but in the real world, most of us are operating by learning from experience where we have an action we want to take and we're preparing for that action and the accomplishment of the goal and, and we're getting feedback and that's when humans are good. So we're actually, the game is just recruiting the way humans learn best. And school is creating this artificial thing. So in a real sense, school is not like real life because it's not letting human beings be smart. Ed, did wow, you want to ask a question? Powerful. I think that's spot on. Right, yes, I, I think that's spot on. Um, and, and my question actually relates to that because I know we're talking about gaming and we're talking about learning. So, Jim, my question for you is, do, do you advocate games in school or the attributes or characteristics of gaming applied to, to learning um, and education? You know, that's an interesting thing because, as I mentioned when I wrote the book, I mean, people wanted some old scholar to say games were good, and so that sold a lot of the books. But uh, the book is really not about uh, putting games in school. I'm all for putting games in school, but that's not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating putting the type of learning games recruit into school, that is, focusing on problem solving, uh, giving people experience with clear goals, letting them have a lot of time on practice, doing it collaboratively. Uh, getting them to produce and not just consume, using words and symbols just in time and on demand. Don't give people a lecture before they're ready for it. Give them words and representations and books as they can use them to solve problems. I mean, a whole set of principles of how games operate. I'm I call that situated learning. The reason I call it situated learning is words when you are doing situated learning. Uh, you're learning a new word like force in physics. That word is not tied to just a definition. It's tied to actions, goals, experiences, dialogue. When you tie words, and you know, most learning is learning new languages, new representational systems. When you tie them to uh, images and actions and goals and experiences, then you really know them. But if you just tie them to a bunch of other books and a bunch of definitions, then the best you can do is write them down on a piece of paper. So I mean, games are one good way to deliver situated learning, but they're by no means the only way to deliver it. Thank you. I'm glad you clarified that because that was my takeaway from your, from your book with your 36 principles. And I think it's important for people to hear you actually say that. I actually think that the action, what game designers do, game designers are making what I call guided experience or well-designed experience. They are saying to you, you learn through experience, but you don't learn through experience because I just throw you into it. It's got to be well-designed so that you face 
you know, really fruitful problems early. You get early successes. You get information just in time and on demand. So that you know, people think, oh, the game is there's no teacher. There is a teacher. The game designer has designed experience to give you clear goals and lots of practice to solve problems and then to marry them to language or representational systems. So I see teachers the same way. In the 21st century, teachers are going to be designers of learning experiences. And they, uh, so their role is not going to be less important, it's going to be more important. But the act of designing learning and the act of designing a game are extremely similar. Great. So Jim, one of the things that I was sort of interested let me, let me say. Yeah, let me say something about what I said earlier about this thing of you know the humans learn best when they care. Uh, there's a story I love about Harry Harlow, you know the guy who did the mother monkey experiments with the wire monkeys, showing that you know if you're raised by a wire monkey, it's not as good as a furry monkey. And he was very controversial. But prior to he was at the University of Wisconsin in the 30s, and he was a guy who studied primate intelligence early on. And the paradigm of studying primate intelligence, you know, at that time was behaviorism, and that is you gave a puzzle or a problem to the primate, and under each piece of the puzzle uh, or the equipment they were going to manipulate, there was a food reward. And the idea was you know, they'd solve the first part, get the reward. That would motivate them to solve the second part. They'd get another reward. By the way, this is still a theory of learning that some people hold. Harlow had the really interesting insight one day of saying, you know, we've never tested the monkey without the rewards. What would he do? And the prediction was he'd stop. right? He'd solve a part of the thing, get no reward, and stop. That was the prediction. When he gave them the primates, he gave them the uh, problems to solve without rewards, they solved them more quickly. That for primates, and we are primates, learning is a gratifying reward. And it's a deeper reward. It's like, you know, for, for human beings, learning is as deeply satisfying as sex and food. But our schools have taken a natural thing, like you know, if, if, you know, if we taught sex, we'd probably make that unhappy too. But the point is that for humans, learning is an, is an appetite. And so he found out that learning is more highly motivating than the food reward. So is anybody there? Well, yeah, I didn't, I, I, because of the lag, I didn't, if you were going to go on, I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, so that's oh I know that, okay that's don't worry about interrupting me people do all the time well so the the one of the things that was really powerful for me in the book was this understanding that in order for these games to sell they actually had to do this very mm -hmm. well so you know obviously right. it, it was very easy to say well you know schools don't aren't are required to do that and so maybe in part that's why we see the formation of theories and ideas that don't end up really enhancing learning. Are there some practices that you see in education that you just think, oh my goodness, boy, is that wrong? Um, yeah, I mean, skilling and drilling people is wrong. Um, giving them loads of words and books with no situated meanings, not tied to any actions or experiences or goals is wrong. I mean, these are the ways Martians might learn, but it's not how human learning works. So the basic thing that we've done to our schools now, because we have all these standardized tests and we teach to those tests, is we've created Martian learning. That is a bunch of learning that is the least motivating sort of learning for human beings. Now, we know some kids do very well at that. Why? Usually they're motivated by, I want to go to Princeton, or mom and dad will you know, hate me if I'm not smart. They're not motivated by saying, I understand why you do algebra. I'm understanding what the values are of people who like algebra. I know how you change the world with algebra. And I really want to solve problems with this tool, and I think I'm going to master it. 
so yeah, I think a lot of practices are bad. I was just out at High Tech High in San Diego, and they do a lot of very good stuff. I mean, they're doing a lot of stuff that fits exactly with the theories I've been pushing and having great success with it. But unfortunately, in so many of our urban schools, driven by what was the best intentioned stuff, you know, this accountability stuff is well intentioned, it has given rise to putting in the paradigm that is not unlike the one that Harry Harlow had first, that you break everything into little bits and give a little reward for each of it, and nobody really understands why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, and wouldn't want to do it anyway unless um, you kept rewarding them with things like grades. Uh, we would have a much more powerful system if we created learning communities where the re learning was its own reward. Have you looked at apprenticeship learning situations much, like the coding and open source software within the context of learning? Yeah, what we do in the new book is coming out on girls and women. I mean, the book is, you know, what's happening to these girls and women, play, it's all about them playing, most of it is about, some of it is on Second Life, but some of it is, most of it is about the Sims. And what you have, whether it's a 12-year-old girl or a 60-year-old woman, they get to be really expert players of the game, and then they get to be more interested in uh, designing for the game in a community not just playing the game. So we do a lot of studying in the communities and how apprenticeship works in those communities. And it works quite differently in different communities. Let me, let me tell you a little story about this, I mean, because it captures the importance of this community and what we're talking about and of apprenticeship. So one of the stories we tell in the book is a woman who's in her 60s and she had a career in the post office. And she gets sick and is a shut-in. She cannot leave her house much. Um, and she has two little granddaughters who play The Sims. And uh, she gets interested in the game by watching her granddaughters play. And one day, one of her granddaughters says to her, you know, in the, in the game, you, you can go to stores and you can buy furniture. And I wanted to buy a potty, a toilet. And I want a purple one. And you can't get a purple. They don't make a purple one. And I, Grandma, I want a purple potty. See, now what grandmother is not going to try to give their granddaughter what she wants? So this, this woman, this old shut-in woman, goes, says, well, I, how can I learn to do that? And she finds one of these sim communities, you know, where people are talking and helping and mentoring each other. And they help her to learn the 3D software and the texture stuff and all of that. She works hard to learn, and she makes a purple potty so she can give it to her granddaughter. And of course, the granddaughter is just thrilled, the only kid in the block with a purple potty. But that learning community she was in, and we talk about how it's structured, was so powerful that the grandmother got hooked on the community and wanted to be a participant in that community and keep learning in that community. So she became a Sims designer and in that community. Today, she has had 17 million downloads of her designs. And her little guest book where people thank her for what she's done has one million thank yous in it. So she is a shut in, but she's not shut out of the global world. And that came uh, by the powerful motivation of wanting to be a participant in a good learning community. So what we argue in the book is we ought to go look at the features of those communities because that is really creating 21st century learning. And notice it's not just about 12-year-olds. This is a 60-some-year-old woman. Uh, because in these communities, one of their core features that makes them powerful mentorship communities is they're not age graded. There's 12-year-old girls and there's 70-year-old women in them. And sometimes the 12-year-old is teaching, sometimes the 12-year-old is learning, sometimes the 70-year-old is teaching, sometimes the 70-year-old is learning. So um, yes, I think this is a core thing that we need to study. It's not just how to 
people design good learning in games, but how are we designing good learning communities, and how is digital media allowing us to do that? And once again, they're very unsimilar to schools because schools are so age-graded for one thing. But we, we talk about, about you know, 10 or 12 other features of these communities when they function at their best. In the book there are 36 principles. In the conclusion you have maybe sort of I'm guessing five or six sort of overarching principles of what good video games offer. Do, do you remember them well enough to kind of give us a sense of that quick overview of sort of the abbreviated, this is what good learning looks like in these games? Uh, no, I don't, but I can, I can tell you what I think now about it. I don't, remember, I don't actually remember my books very well. But um, the, you know, the, the big overview would be, first of all, you want to create situated meaning. Remember what that is, is you allow a person to have experiences. And those experiences are marrying words to experiences, images, actions, goals, and dialogue. Um, you are fronting problem solving. But that problem solving has to have a lot of practice. Humans, pra learning is a practice effect for human beings. They're not going to be good unless they spend hours practicing something. So something must motivate the practice. Otherwise, it's a big bore. What motivates the practice in a video game and in good learning in schools is an identity. I want the sort of identity of the type of people who use this knowledge. I understand their values. I understand why you do this in the world. I want to do it. It's cool. When a kid is learning science or algebra in school, usually they haven't got the slightest idea why you would do this, why it's interesting, why it's powerful, and what the value system is of people who love it and believe it and do it. Right? So uh, those are, you know, and, and therefore they're not very motivated. Uh, if you take a game like SWAT 4, a fabulous game, what it does is it tells you exactly what the value system of a SWAT team member is, and why they do what they do, and how they do it, and what the goals and standards are. And then you have such a lucid understanding, one thing happens. You either buy into that identity and you want to do it, or you don't. And if you don't, you can't learn. See, so you don't want to play the game. This is another problem with schools, by the way, is there's only one game. If the industry made the same game for everybody, they'd go broke. The, the, the SWAT game understands that if you won't buy the identity and the value system that goes with it and want to use their tools, then you're not going to learn very deeply. Same thing with science. If I don't want to use their tools, I don't know what they do, I don't know why they do it, um, then you've got a problem. So one paradigm, you know, David Schaefer at the University of Wisconsin has a thing called epistemic games where he, has, he says, let kids be professionals. Use digital media to let a kid be an urban designer, for example, an urban planner. Make them use the professional tools of urban planning. Make them live up to the professional goals of urban planning. And you can use a game. He has a game like SimCity, but where it's authentic urban planning. But where the kids then have to build an urban plan and they have to you know, deal with the mayor and deal with the greens and deal with the business people and get an urban plan that it pleases everybody enough and defend it. But then they have to actually defend it in front of a real urban planner. What are they doing? They're thinking like a professional, and they're recruiting the skills those professionals use. That's what we care about, the skills. They're thinking like the professionals, so we hook them on identity. And he gets fabulous results with this, because he's saying, look, 
You're going to pick up the skill because you want to achieve this identity. And with digital media, we have powerful tools by which even a middle school kid can pull off this identity. He has another one on science journalism, one on engineering. So that's, that's a paradigm. That's, you know, it's situated meaning, lots of time on task, and, uh, it's, and, and he calls these games because they have clear goals. But who cares what they are? So those who have been listening to this Future of Education series are going to find a real connection with uh, what Jim calls pleasantly frustrating experiences learning and Dan, Dan Willingham's um, work from uh, Why Students Don't Like School and then um, Dan Coyle's uh, The Talent Code. Uh, so for those of you who are enjoying this, I think you, you might actually find a, a nice connection with those there. You know, I now realize, I told you I didn't know who Dan Willingham is, but I've read that book. It's quite a good book. I read it on my Kindle. How much time do you spend playing games now? Several hours a day. Do you keep a notepad next to you to take notes of these things, or are you able to kind of uh, uh, see them in a larger scope and, and, uh, and begin to recognize the patterns? I don't keep a notepad because uh, I do care about winning the game. Uh, you know, I, when I first started, you know, I'm a, by training a linguist. I only got into games six or seven years ago. And uh, the thing that I, really hit me is you cannot study these things if you don't play the games, right? It's, it would be, it's saying I don't, I, I don't want to play the games because I'm too busy would be like an anthropologist saying I want to do an ethnography of Samoa, but I'm too busy to go to Samoa. Uh, and so my first graduate students in this would say, well, I can't actually play the games because I've got to do all this reading and writing. I'm too busy. And I'd say, well, you know, you're telling me you can't go to Samoa. Uh, and so uh, we've got a paradigm where you have to play the games. Um, but I, I, you know, if you're going to play the games, you don't want to come at the game while you're playing it as a researcher. You want to come in as a gamer. Because remember, I'm trying to understand what the identity of a gamer is. What does it feel like to be one? Um, how is that playing into design? How is this recruiting me to get more mastery? Uh, and uh, so I try to be in that experience while I do it, and then I reflect on it later. You know, one of the things, the Army, as you may know, is one of the biggest purveyor of games for learning. They, they do uh, train through games uh, quite often. And one thing they discovered, which is a very important principle, is that a large part of the learning that happens with a game happens after the game when, they do what they, when you do what they call after-action reviews. That is, where people sit around and compare strategies, talk about what they did, um, uh, you know, argue with each other, compare and contrast what they did and why they did it. That, that after-action review which is done in the real world with the people talking about the experience they just had. The Army has found is an essential part of the learning. And they actually won't buy a game that doesn't do it. So um, a tremendous amount of the learning happens in anything. You have an experience. That experience is well designed. But it is absolutely crucial that you're in a community of people where you can talk about that experience, reflect on it, and strategize about it. And of course, gamers do that all the time. I mean, watch a seven-year-old. He wants badly to talk about his game and his strategies and compare and contrast it with other kids. It's a very, very important part of the learning. One of the first things I did when I bought the book was I went to the index to look for a reference to Ender's Game. Have you read that? Right. Does, is it kind yes, of, yes. is it one of those in fact, common you know, reference Andrew books? Scott Card now writes video games. <laughs> did you like that book? 
Well, I first read the short story, and I liked it quite a bit. And then I liked in the in the series of books. I don't know. I think there's four of them. I, I liked the first two quite a lot. Then I felt it got weaker and weaker. Um, Ender's Game as a short story really makes a very interesting point, and that is that um, for better or worse, and it could be either, the uh, video games can collapse in the real world because, of course, the act, you know, when, when people are doing surgery today, very often they're not looking at you, they're looking at a screen. In a, in a laparoscopic surgery, they're often looking at a screen and manipulating little objects just like in a game. And by the way, a guy named Rossner has shown that the surgeons who are better at video games are better at the surgery. Uh, so, the, the, you know, manipulating screens and manipulating reality is not uncommon. You know, in modern bombers, when you bomb people, all you're doing is looking at a screen. So Ender's Game was way ahead of its time in saying, you know, look, this, this, this division between screens and real life is going to collapse. That's got real potential for good, but it has real potential for bad. Let me give you an example. There is a company, I'm not going to, you know, started by some very good people, uh, uh, where they want to turn workplaces, especially ones that are boring, or over-challenging into games, where the person think, like in a call center, they think they're doing a game, but they're actually doing the call center work. And the idea is to you know motivate more, to make it more pleasant. And, you know, and this is this is a company they want to do this, consult with business, and do it. And they're already having some success doing that. Is that good or bad? Well, you know, you think about it. One thing that's good about it is you know this call center job was really boring and demeaning, and now it's pretty exciting because I'm in a role-playing game and I'm collaborating with others and my work life is better. But the other thing is, that sounds bad is it's a great way to manipulate people for the boss to surveil people and in like an ender's game for you to be doing stuff, the consequences of which are now removed from you. So you know, it, this is just one element where these technologies are powerful enough that like every technology, by the way, most certainly including books, they can be either used for tr bad stuff or for good stuff. So in the book you talk about liking movies, and Cable Green just made a reference to the movie Surrogates or Surrogate. Do you like movies that address these issues of how we deal with technology? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I, I like movies, but you know, as I've gamed, uh, and I, you, know, you know the movie industry, the game industry are kind of collapsing a bit. There are a lot of games made from movies, movies made from games. Often they have both. Like in Avatar, there's a game and there's a movie, and you can play either one. And, and so I do, you know, I, there are games, I, movies I watch and I say, you know, I would rather be doing that myself. I mean, there's a certain sort of action movie now that I'm sitting there frustrated that I'm not doing. <laughs> I, I guess I appreciate the movies where it's more about uh, something that isn't me doing it. Uh, in Avatar, you know, I constantly, I said, why can't I just be the blue guy? You know, which you can. You can go play the game and do that. Um, you know, I, you know the, the role, the, there's a big controversy among gamers about how important stories are to games. So, so there's people like John Carmack who think that the story in a game is no more important than the story in pornography. And there are other designers like Warren Spector who said stories are very crucial. And, that, and some gamers care about the stories and some don't. Because remember, the game is not about the story. It's about the gameplay and the problem solving. However, the trend has been if you look at the games that have come out over the last year, is these games are getting incredibly intricate stories that are filmed cinematically where you feel you're in the movie. This is you know, things like uh, Drake's Fortune, Uncharted, Drake's Fortune, the second one, um, uh, Assassin's Creed 2, and many, uh, you know, um, Mass Effect 2, I mean, many, many of these. I mean, this is now kind of the, 
format. And what these stories are doing is they're motivating you. They're saying, boy, this is a thick world. I really know why I'm here. I know what I'm doing. and It's all lucid to me and it's really emotionally involving because it's not that it's not like Henry James. I've got a big intricate plot. It's really like this is this is some form of real life because it's thick and there's the things I care about. So story is beginning and 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 putting you in the midst of the action is is not replacing the gameplay, but what it's doing is it's, it's motivating you and it it shows you how important motivation should be in school. If if the if I was using algebra in a world that seemed really thick and I cared about and had emotions about, uh, then I'd really, you know, I'd really learn much more deeply. So I think they've learned now how to create these stories that, that become part of the motivation and lucidity, making it lucid of why I'm doing this, what does it mean, and also, by the way, giving it an emotional meaning. This thing about emotional meaning is crucial. We have thought for years that there is a big separation between emotion and cognition. And all of the you know, research in neuroscience is showing that is not true that humans really only learn well when what they're learning has an emotional charge for them. Right? It turns out that if something you're learning has an emotional charge, you care about it, uh, you process it in a very different way, much more deeply, you integrate it with your other information much more deeply. And if you don't have an emotional charge, you don't care about it, you process it relatively deeply. That's the primary reason why school is not successful for many people because it doesn't create caring. And games have caught on to that intuitively. I've got to make you care. By the way, the fact that you could lose or die makes you care. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of a new thing that's happening uh, with story. And at that level, some of these games are getting more involving than the movies. That's a fascinating Jim, this answer. Is Ed again. Um, given everything that you said, how how do you see um, professional development happening so that we get large classes? That, well, you know, apparently today I don't know that there are, you know, a lot of classroom teachers playing games on the level that you've just mentioned that you. No, uh, we found in some research that uh, of among the people who are undergraduates majoring, the people majoring in education are among the least digitally savvy of all the undergraduates. Um, and so that's a very serious problem. And you know, my what I would suggest we do here is we need to create one of these learning communities like the type I talked about with the SEMS where teachers can be in that, producing stuff, producing learning, producing other products, designing with digital media. We've got to do for the teachers what we did for that elderly woman in the Sims, where it's a safe place, it's a community they want to be part of, and um, it becomes a place where they become designers of learning and they're digitally savvy. And you know, there's no reason why in, some, in much of that place uh, their kids couldn't be there too and they could be doing stuff collaboratively. But we really need something like that to create a culture, a digital culture for teachers that make those teachers see themselves as designers. Um, for some people, Second Life does something like that. But we need, need one that's much richer and deeper and, and much more well designed to um, let those teachers become uh, designers of their own kids' learning. So I put a note in the chat we were going to move to Q&A. And Jenna raised her hand right away. And Jenna, I'm going to give you the mic. And I've seen you uh, excitedly making comments in the chat. So feel free to turn your mic on. You do so by clicking on the microphone button in the audio. There you go. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. OK. Um, OK, this is, I'm just so excited to be in on this conversation. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts, Jim, on, um, you know, you talked about schools being a type of game and that what they, 
what they don't do well is getting people, getting kids to care about winning. But in theory, anyway, they have a lot of the same features. There's a definite win state. It's possible to lose. Um, and there are rules. And, and I'm, I wonder if you could, if you have any thoughts on what makes the game of school different from the games that make you care more about winning. That's a great question. I mean, uh, school is a game. Right, and and that game is uh, it's more important to learn to write things down on a piece of paper than actually understand them. Uh, collaboration is a form of cheating. Um, the the person who knows most is the teacher, and you listen to her even when you know you're getting lots of language you can't do anything with. Um, and uh, you should show you care about it even if you don't because you need this grade. But it is very much a game. It's the sort of game that would get a really bad review if the kids could review it. And we know this especially by high school. You know, when, when the baby boom generation, when I was in school, baby boomers didn't do that well in school, but they claim they liked it. Modern high school kids, even if they do well, even if they have A's, often say by high school they don't like it. They find it completely irrelevant. School's gotten you know, a pretty bad set of reviews, but you're absolutely right, it's the game. So we're, you know, and it does have a clear goal in the sense of you know, writing stuff on paper and getting a grade. That isn't really a very deeply motivating goal. Let me give you an example. Uh, you know, most people think the way you would teach geometry is you teach geometry. Trouble is, the person learning geometry, A, doesn't know why you'd want to do it, doesn't know who does it, doesn't know the values you use when you do it, um, and thinks, wow, this looks hard. It doesn't have any meaning. It's not lucid. So, but you know, if you go in and you build stuff in Second Life, Second Life is a massive world in which the players build it themselves, and they have to use a 3D engine to build, and it's not easy. So kids do it better than adults. Uh, when you're designing in Second Life, you have to use algebra got to get your floors even, to get the angles even, and they have a very nice tool that actually that shows you the angles and the figures and stuff so that you can see it and visually overlay it and stuff. And we talk in the new book about a woman who failed geometry and is now a top designer in Second Life and really knows geometry well now because she's using geometry as a tool to do something meaningful for her. See, it's not labeled geometry. It's labeled Second Life, but she learned geometry there. When we went and labeled it geometry, what we just did is it, it, we gave a set of tools but no meaning to them. It would be like saying, here's all this stuff from carpentry. You know, you got a hammer, you got nails, you got saws. But by the way, we aren't going to do any carpentry. We're just going to muck around with these tools. So, you know, uh, Second Life inadvertently created a really nice tool to get people to do geometry while they were designing stuff they passionately cared about designing. And the additional hook, she wants to be respected by the other designers. So she cannot have bad buildings. So geometry becomes an accidental property because we didn't make a big deal out of it. We made a big deal out of the identity she wanted to have. And oh, by the way, you can't do this if you don't learn geometry, some geometry. If I've missed a question in the chat, please put it in again. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, poor Jenna is hyperventilating. It says she, she may need a paramedic. She's so <laughs> excited that she actually asked you a question and that she called you Jim. She just can't believe it. Um, she most certainly should call me Jim. <laughs> hey, so do you ever get people who say, what about the kid who goes to college and spends all of his nights playing games and crashes and burns? How do you even address the, that kind of a pushback? Well, so this is the issue of addiction because it comes up all the time. 
uh, you know, and by the way, there's a whole profession now of psychiatrists who make their living doing game addiction. Um, and the media, of course, makes a big deal. You know, we hear about the kid who killed himself in Korea because he played so long he didn't eat. Uh, we don't hear about the tens of millions who didn't. But um, is it, it addiction and, uh, you know, and letting people have their lives crash and burn from games does happen. You know, it's not the predominant phenomenon. When we've studied kids playing games, by the way, we find many, many kids are very good at games and very good at school. When we ask them, where do you, you know, where do you learn more, at home with your digital media or at school, they'll say, I learn more at home, but I have to do well in school because I need that credential. Uh, so there's, that's, we don't hear about those kids, but there, there are a lot of them. However, addiction is real. World of Warcraft, for example, has given rise to some very addicted people who do nothing but play World of Warcraft. Now, we, our typical thing is to say, that's that person's problem. He's sick. But the problem is, why does he find World of Warcraft more motivating than real life? We've got to ask, what's wrong with this guy's real life? And, and why is it even reasonable that he finds World of Warcraft more motivating? Well, it's because, in many ways, World of Warcraft is better designed for human dignity and for a feeling of human agency than it are many people's real lives. So, you know, you get stories. We've followed some of these people. They've, they've been divorced. They have a very poor job. They lost that job. They don't have a lot of friends. Now they're leading a guild in World of Warcraft. They're viewed with great respect because they help people. They help design the other people's learning. They had a second chance at life, a second chance at dignity. You know, real life does not give everybody, but by the way, in modern capitalist societies, more and more, uh, many people cannot get a lot of dignity on market, right? You're most three-fifths of all workers are service workers. They're at Walmart. So that person's just like you. They want dignity. They want leadership. They want respect. And these virtual worlds offer them a second chance to that. So is it surprising some of them get addicted? Not at all. It says to us we should certainly treat those people, but we should begin to worry about a world in which only one-fifth of the people as in the United States, get jobs that are truly rewarding economically and rewarding at an eco level, and three-fifths get service jobs. The problem is both the world and the games. It's not just the games. I'm really glad I asked that question because that's a, uh, you, you've raised some points that I, I know I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. Thank you for doing that. Um, we've got a few minutes left. If you, if you had a question that you didn't get to ask, I do want to encourage you to take the mic. Jenna shouldn't be the only one who gets the thrill of calling Professor G. Jim. Um, while we're, we're waiting for the next question to come in, I am going to go to the slide that shows um, events coming up. But we do want to express appreciation again to Illuminate and Learn Central, my employers, and to C. Bloom and Associates, Charlene's uh, organization that actually give me a book budget to buy all these books. Jim, would you possibly mm. consider coming back to this venue after you've written that you've, you've uh, sure I'd love out? to. I think this group would really yeah, love it. I'd love to. Um, yeah, uh, I'd love to talk about the new stuff. Terrific. So I'm also putting up uh, tomorrow night Shell Israel, uh, next week Clay Shirky and others, uh, Dan Pink the week after. Lots of fun coming up. So any final questions here? Uh, Ed, did you have a, a question you want to ask before we close? Or you know, I've been talking a lot. I, I really, again, appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, I'd like to give over, give the uh, space over to the people in the audience listening. Good. And, I'm, and if this chat flies by very fast, I'm sorry the two of you aren't getting to see it. 
Um, lots of really interesting comments. Um, uh, Julie Evans commented uh, that the surveys that they do are showing the, the gaming between boys and girls at sixth grade is uh, equivalent. And a lot of people in this uh, room who um, who probably have a lot of good things to say. Um, I'm wishing that I had watched. Right, that's digital. a very important point. Go ahead. Uh, we, we've also found that girls, modern girls, play games, but then they tend to give them up just to the time they give up science and math by middle school. And, and since games are a route to tech, tech skills for many boys, just the way when girls opt out of science and math, and they're, when by opting out of games, they're opting out of one route to these tech skills. So it isn't so much that girls are not motivated to play games. It's that our society still makes uh, them, at a certain period, um, think that it's uncool, uh, especially in front of the boys, to be into science and math and these games. And that, that we need to change. That's a very crucial thing that has to be changed. You talk a lot about your son in the book. Uh, are you open about where yeah. he is now and, and uh, how the you know how his experience with games? Yeah, is? he's he's uh, he's a, a you know he's a I think very typical. He was raised on games. I mean, not he got into them before me. I got into them by trying to help him when he didn't need it. Um, and but he's also uh, you know uh, he is passionate about acting. He's in a thing in uh, called Young Shakespeare where the kids put on kids do it uncut. Shakespeare plays, and he didn't go to the Shakespeare because he knew it was canonical. He saw it as kind of like a game, you know, strange language and fantasy and all these worlds. And he also went to Dungeons and Dragons, which you do face to face. And so for him, doing the stuff that was game like face to face was really cool because he had been raised on a screen. So far from the screen hooking him, he was hooked on a lot of other stuff as well. In addition, like many kids, he got very interested in writing fact sheets for games, modding stuff for games, you know, carrying it out to other stuff. So um, uh, I never worried about how much time he spent with games because I saw that they were leading to other things. I would worry if it was leading to nothing with games, but if it was leading to other things, then it's not how much time you do it. It's where it's leading you and where it's developing you. So he comes back to games all the time, but he also goes out from the games to other stuff, and I think that's what a lot of, a lot of kids do. You want him to do. That's really fun. How old is he now? He's now uh, 13, and uh, he's passionate about acting from this stuff. But he's also, you know, he's in high school and does all his regular high school stuff. Well, he's very much a kid who would say he learned more. He learns more at home than at school, but that school is important. And he actually likes school, but he still realizes that you know the type of learning he does at home has a different paradigm. This group hears way too much about my daughter who's a theater major in, in college, but uh, uh, 13 years old oh, really? and doing Shakespeare, wonderful. So Tom, you're going to get the final question. We've only got one minute to go. I've given you the mic. Feel free to turn it on and ask your question. OK, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, great. Um, yes. This has been a great discussion. Thanks, Jim. I wanted to ask you. When I took a class, a, a, um, a graduate class, and one of it was on gaming, uh, by the end of the, the class, about half the people wanted to change their uh, thesis topic to gaming, but then no one ended up doing that. It seems like um, no one has a handle on exactly how to incorporate games as far as you know, World of Warcraft and those things in education. It, is there a, a solution, a, a, an approach to be taken? 
Yeah, this is changing. Lots of young academics, because they're from the gamer generation, are getting jobs now and studying games in all over. They're in anthropology, they're in sociology. You see people studying games all the time in these various fields. Education is actually behind in this regard. But there's, this is changing because the, the academics now, the new ones, are in their 30s. They're core gamer generation people. Um, there are lots of programs starting where people are doing game research. But the problem has been this. We, we, lots of universities form game programs to train game designers to go into industry. What we need are programs that treat games, just like literature, as a liberal art. You can use games to learn a whole bunch of interdisciplinary stuff about art, design, technology, society. And too few universities have had the guts to create gaming as a liberal art. Uh, the University of California, Irvine, just put in a major on gaming as a liberal art. That's where, you know, it, but it took a while for literature in the 19th century to become something we studied in college. Uh, it will happen. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut us here because, Jim, you've uh, been generous to spend an hour with us, and and my goal is to make sure that we finish on time so that you can leave. Um, I'm clapping for you. Okay. Using the clapping hand in the room. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, there are lots of others. Were there any thumbs down? No, there are no thumbs down. I haven't seen a single oh. one all night. Not even a confused face. So you've done quite well. You have a well. great audience. <laughs> you are standing well, thank you very much. I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much for everybody being here. Thank you, Ed. All right. Bye-bye. Jim, Jim, this is Ed. Thanks, guys. Sure, Steve. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, everybody. So much fun to have you here tonight. I can stay for a couple of minutes for post-show chat. But that was delightful. And uh, how exciting. And, and Jenna, uh, sure looks like you had a good time, and uh, boy, what a, what a fun evening. If anybody wants to take the microphone, they are welcome to at this point. Um, if you kind of a wrap-up or make comments or discussion. If you're not, you can be done, and you can exit just by closing out the window. You will get a survey for tonight's show. We do appreciate it if you fill that out and give us some feedback. Anybody want to say anything? Jenny, want to take the mic again? Julie, fun to see you. Always fun to have you um, to be in contact with you. I don't know how often you come, but it's sure fun to see your name in here. This is a fun week. I don't know if any of you know Shell Israel, but I think that will be exciting tomorrow as well. Okay, well, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of conversation ready to happen, so I think we'll we'll sign off. Uh, just close your window out or go up to file and exit. The recording links should be up later tonight or tomorrow morning. And uh, what a great show and what a generous uh, guest uh, he was tonight, Jim was tonight. Okay, thanks everybody. Have a great night. If you don't leave the room in a couple of minutes, I'll actually kick you out so the recording can process. Take care. <laughs>